Welcome to This One Life. Today on the show, Professor Dr. Michael Zoders. Michael is a distinguished academic with more than 60 publications in the field of exercise science. He completed his PhD in exercise physiology from the Florida State University and is a full professor and the department chair at the Department of Exercise Science and Health Promotion at Florida Atlantic University. He's also a managing partner in the Mass Research Review. This is part two of our conversation. In part one, we discuss resistance training proximity to failure, meaning do you have to go all out until muscle failure when hitting the gym? In some cases, it's not necessary. In other cases, it can even be detrimental. Today, we will do a deep dive on exercise and cognition, the surprising impact of mental fatigue on exercise performance, how you can avoid most negative effects, why resistance training alone can make you smarter, and what the best protocols are to gain the main benefit for your brain. Enjoy. Is it okay for you if we shift gears and jump into the topic of exercise and cognition? Let's do it. Awesome. Then let's take a look at the relationship between the brain and resistance training in both ways, meaning how your brain can impact performance throughout resistance training, uh, more specifically how mental fatigue influences your exercise performance, but also the other way around how resistance training can impact your brain health. To start and to get an introduction to the topic. We talk a lot about how things like supplementation, nutrition, warm-up, all of these kind of things before a workout can affect your workout performance. We hardly ever talk about the impact of mental fatigue. What general impact does mental fatigue have on workout performance and why? Because as a layman, you could think the one thing is my brain, then I'm doing something clearly very physical, which is not rocket science, aka resistance training. Why should there be a connection? Yeah, so th this is a topic that I, I really enjoy discussing these days. I think it's something that's very practical. And the research has really picked up over the past five years in this area of exercise and mental fatigue. And so the first thing on exercise and mental fatigue is to distinguish between acute mental fatigue, which I think is going to be our focus here, and then chronic mental fatigue, which please feel free to ask about. But to define those first, acute mental fatigue is essentially as it sounds like you're right now, you are listening to this or watching this, but let's say that after that you, you go to work, you go to school and you take an exam, you listen to a lecture, you're taking a lot of notes, you're taking some sort of test on a computer, you're giving a presentation at work, whatever it might be. And you're doing something that takes a lot of effort and focus and mental fatigue. Your mental fatigue is then going to be elevated, right? The issue with exercise is when it's elevated as soon as you enter the gym or go on a run and we'll get back to that. But that's acute mental fatigue. Chronic mental fatigue isn't from one stimulus, right? It's a manifestation over time. 
Chronic mental fatigue has been investigated in a lot of professional athletes or national team athletes looking at over the course of a very long season. When there's a lot of repetitiveness, things are really drawn out, uh, the same thing over and over again. Oh my gosh, I have to go to this practice again. I have to do this, right? I have to listen to the same speeches every day, that sort of thing. And then what we see there is if an athlete kind of after a certain number of weeks or months just feels like they're going through the motions and they think they're trying as hard as they can, but they're not actually giving it their best, although they're not actively trying to not give it their best. It's more of a subconscious thing. And that's that chronic mental fatigue. Our focus here, I think, is acute mental fatigue. Of course, please feel free to ask about the other. But just to distinguish for the listeners here, if they feel like they're experiencing chronic mental fatigue, that's a different manifestation than the acute mental fatigue. And the chronic mental fatigue can occur independent of performance impairment. Whereas the acute mental fatigue, we're going to talk about it in the context of it being directly related to the performance impairment. So what we're seeing in the literature is a typical crossover research design in that a crossover design is that instead of having two groups, one group does training program A, 10 people, and then 10 different people do training program B. A crossover design would be, let's take just these 10 people and only those same 10. One day they come into the laboratory and they do one condition. So they lift weights, let's say, under one condition. And then they come in another time and they lift weights under another condition. And then you can compare which intervention, which condition did better. And then you can infer for those individuals, okay, this thing is probably a better way to go than doing this thing. So that's a crossover design. And, and that's very good because you're comparing people to themselves. Since there is such a high individual rate of response, if you can have someone serve as their own control, that's an excellent way to go ahead and do research. They'll have some sort of intervention that is there to induce mental fatigue in one condition, and they'll compare it to a control condition. The, the way, which I think is very interesting, is 30 minutes of engagement on social media on a smartphone. And so somebody will be sitting with their phone, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, whatever it is that they're doing, actively engaged, commenting, things like that, uh, which I think is somewhat typical of what people do. Hey, I have a little bit of downtime. I'm going to pull out my phone, do this before I head to the gym. Sure. And that has also shown to significantly increase mental fatigue. Now, not every single study, but fairly consistently, these interventions, both the smartphone and the computerized test have increased mental fatigue and led to a decrease in the number of reps performed at a relative intensity or a percentage of 1RM compared to the control when just watching the documentary. So we can conclude from that, that an acute increase in mental fatigue may decrease muscular endurance. Now, the mental fatigue literature has been around for a while in aerobic exercise, and it does decrease aerobic exercise performance more reliably than resistance training. For mental fatigue, it's often said to decrease or impair exercise performance, the performance should fit one of two different categories, meaning that the performance should be either complex in nature or should be of long duration. So if we think of endurance running or endurance cycling, that's of long duration. Thus, mental fatigue, high levels of mental fatigue seem to impair performance. For resistance training, when 
maximal strength tests have been done, especially on machines like a dynamometer where you're strapped into a machine and there's no real skill component and you're just doing maximal strength. Mental fatigue has not been shown reliably to decrease performance, which makes sense because that type of machine-based max strength or max force does not fit that criteria. It is not complex in nature and it is not of a long duration. Muscular endurance, however, is of a longer duration. And if you're doing that on a squat or a deadlift, something that might have a higher skill component isn't uh, super complex, but is some complexity to it, at least more so than a single joint movement. So those are the ways that mental fatigue seems to manifest. And the what's been done in the research, I think is very cool because it's either focused on that cognitive interference component. And if you're not quite familiar with what that means, I would recommend trying out that Stroop test. You see that word and it says blue, but it's in pink and it does take you a split second to go ahead and say the color instead of just reading the word. So it is cognitive interference. And then the practical aspect of the smartphone, the social media engagement, there's a lot of questions that are remaining with this, right? And I think the main one is, okay, if social media engagement can increase mental fatigue and potentially impair performance, how long does the mental fatigue last for? And then what other types of day-to-day school or work-related activities could increase mental fatigue and decrease performance? Wow, that social media induces this mental fatigue that you can even measure in certain types of resistance training. I didn't know that. There, there is this feeling that you have that after mindlessly scrolling for half an hour through your phone, that somehow you're not 100% there, but never seen any work directly quantify it. Is there, with all the simplification and looking at it from a population level, obviously, but is there any way to say by how much your performance is being impaired in this complex resistance training exercises? Yeah, so off the top of my head, and most of these studies are doing three, four sets to failure at maybe 70%-ish of 1RM about there. It's about a 15% difference, 14% difference in these studies. So we're looking at maybe, that, that would go to about a rep per set over those three, four sets. So when we're doing eight, nine, 10 reps per set over three or four sets, and you say 15%, that seems, oh, that's a huge amount. But then when you look at it and you think, oh, that's a rep, a single rep per set, that seems like a little bit less. And I think there's two ways to interpret that. One way to interpret that is to say, oh, that's not good. That's less volume and less volume is gonna lead to less muscle growth and so forth. To push back on that, and I said this earlier, just because you're doing one fewer rep, that's probably not enough to make a difference in muscle growth over time. So I I always think of it this way, and you mentioned the, the term supplementation, which when introducing this topic, let's say a supplement adds one rep to three sets or one rep per set in a study. And somebody said, great, I'm gonna go get that supplement. This is all I need. Let's go, it's gains time. And they go ahead and they take that supplement. I would challenge that person and say, if you wanna take a supplement, that's fine. But is that really enough 
of an increase in volume to have a meaningfully different uh, hypertrophy over time, especially given the monetary cost of that supplement? Is that really worth your time to do that? And so I'm not sure if the detriment here that enormous. However, if I think it really comes down to scheduling, if somebody goes to work or school and they have that, typically when they do that, they have a set schedule. So they're always training at this time. And if your training always comes right after and you're training in that mentally fatigued state over and over and over again, not only might that be a little bit less volume, but that's probably not a super enjoyable way to train. You're probably not fully into it. Right? Your motivation is a little bit lower. And that's one of the mechanisms here is that motivation tends to be lower. And so in that case, I'm not sure how sustainable that is, how much somebody would want to do that, and so forth. And the other thing is, that's three, four sets that are tested typically on one exercise. Where a difference should really manifest, because it affects things that are of long duration, is if we extrapolate this out, and this is an extrapolation, and an opinion, not necessarily, we don't have the data on this yet. So this would be an hy a hypothesis if we were to do a new study. I could be very wrong on this. So I always wanna be clear when I'm, we're moving to opinion zone or hypothesizing zone as opposed to what actually exists, which is that if we're only looking at this in the research so far across three or four sets, what if we take an entire session? That entire session is three to four sets across six, seven, eight different exercises, right? And so now, because this affects things that are of long duration, I would expect or hypothesize to see a greater detriment in performance and muscular endurance due to mental fatigue the longer the session goes on. So I think we're seeing that 15% difference or rep percent manifest over those three, four sets. But if somebody were to keep going through an entire session, I would expect the difference to be a bit greater because mental fatigue affects performance that is of longer duration. So to answer the question directly, in those three, four, extra, three, four sets, we're seeing about a 15% or one rep per set difference at those moderate loads for muscular endurance. I'm not sure that's enough to have a negative impact on muscle growth. However, consider the downstream effects, to use that term again, of how somebody might feel if they have to train like this all the time. If they only have to train like this once in a while, and I, I can give some ways to avoid or get around this. But if they have to train like that all the time, that could be a detriment. And if they go through an entire session, I would hypothesize that a performance might be impaired to a bit of a greater degree as the session goes on. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. What you stated is how much does it really matter? So for me personally, it would be less on the resistance training side, although it's good to know. For me, like one very practical question for, for myself would be, what balls, uh, ball games, for example, so I'm playing tennis and there's sometimes just these situations where I have the feeling that, man, all the time I'm like half a step away. I'm like, I'm quarter of a second too late. I hit the ball, just not really perfectly in front of mine. And it feels that for the outcome, quote unquote, that's a much bigger difference versus if I lose a, a repetition every now and then. Also, the other thing that I personally struggle with is after a long day at work with mental fatigue, but also with many other things. So I will, this is 100% opinion 
and random hypothesis zone, but social interactions have been shown to be extremely complex too. There's some theories that, that actually your brain developed in, in, in such a volume and in such a complexity, not because we're able to handle tools, but because we're able to handle the social dynamics of very large groups. But I tend to do even worse than normally in the social <laughs> gatherings and social groups if I'm mentally fatigued. But maybe also keeping the time in mind, what I think would be really helpful I don't know whether you can do this on a higher level or we're losing too much nuance is why does mental fatigue in theory? So what's the theory behind why does mental fatigue have an impact on my resistance training performance? What, what happens when biologically nerve system energy reserves? Yeah. So two, two things there. So the ball sports component of it, the social interaction component of it, and then the why. And so I think these all go together. And so there are data that show that acute mental fatigue can affect decision-making and skill performance in ball sports, as you suggest. There's data, I believe, on volleyball. There's data on swimming. I think there's data on soccer as well. And, or what we call soccer in America, what other people refer to as football. And so on this, when we think of that, that fits under the category of complex. Some of those uh, sports, long duration as well, depending on what you're doing. But that fits under the complex. So specifically decision-making, I think even in boxing too, mental fatigue is affecting decision-making. And so when we think of decision-making, there are different proteins in the brain that are going to affect decision-making. So when we exercise, typically, we're going to get a dopamine release. That dopamine is, is suppressed when we're under a huge state of mental fatigue, right? Other neurotrophins, neurotrophins are proteins that are going to interact and assist in neurogenesis. So the preservation or potentially the creation of neurons. One of those specifically is BDNF or brain-derived neurotrophic factor. BDNF is the neurotrophin that is most responsive to exercise. In states of mental fatigue, BDNF levels, circulating BDNF levels may not be as high as well. And so BDNF is associated with memory, other parts of the brain associated with decision-making, and the, the increase in mental fatigue seems to depress all of these factors that is negatively affecting that performance, that judgment, that decision-making. So it can have a direct effect on some of those proteins and some of those neurotrophins in the brain. The social interaction aspect of this that you brought up, I think is a huge one. I was chuckling to myself because my wife and I talk about this all the time. We have a lot of great friends and we, we are so fortunate to, and we love seeing them. And as I mentioned, we have a seven-year-old. So on the weekends, especially on Saturdays, we find ourselves birthday parties and there's this and there's that. And when anybody that has little kids that's listening to this is knows the reaction when they get the invitation from the, the teacher at school or whatever, and you're like... God, whose party is it this weekend? Lori's got a party. Tori's got a party. James has got a party, whatever it is. And you're like, all right, fine. We'll go to the bowling alley, right? And you go and it's great because the kids are having a great time. But that's on Saturday, but you got to do the thing and be friendly with everybody. And it's genuine. You like all these people. But then on Sunday, we wake up and we're like, yeah, we just need a break today. We need a break. It's too much. We can't, we have to get it together. And going and doing something in the gym or exercising after all of that. So I always make sure to get my training done before that. 
because after that, you're not into it. You, at least I'm not. I need a break. I need to rest. I'm not excited after that. So to me, I think that is a big one for the acute mental fatigue and something that I've certainly experienced as well. But yes, ball sports can be affected, specifically decision-making. Yes, social interaction can certainly have that. And then the, effect, the effects on the depression of dopamine with the acute mental fatigue and perhaps the lower levels or the not as much activation or simulation of these proteins that are associated with decision-making, judgment, memory, things like that. That protein that you mentioned, was it BDNF? BDNF, yes, that stands for brain-derived neurotropic factor. And it's a neurotrophin, so those are proteins in the brain that are associated with neurogenesis or neuroprotection, so the preservation or creation of neurons. And I mentioned BDNF specifically because BDNF is the neurotrophin that is the most responsive to exercise. So when research is done looking at exercise's effects on neuroprotection or neurogenesis, that research typically looks at the effects of exercise on BDNF concentrations or BDNF levels. Okay, that would have been the question. So if exercise affects BDNF and BDNF has, for example, impact on memory and, and all of these kind of things, and we came from the perspective that, okay, the mental fatigue, it, it reduces the impact on BDNF. So that might be the reason why there is less resistance training performance. But the other circle that I wanted to do here is just now taking away the mental fatigue part. So exercise resistance training helps the body to create this BDNF, has benefits for cognitive function, for memory, and so on. Is that a correct derivation to make? Does resistance training have an impact on brain performance or brain health? Yeah, so to me, this is such a crucial area of research. I, I always try to think of it in these terms, is not so many individuals are interested in exercise for strength purposes and for muscle growth. And I was there too for many years. But I think we forget sometimes if we're lost in it from that perspective, which is a very important perspective. But that exercise in general is just very powerful. And most people that engage in exercise, the vast majority, are looking for some general health benefit. They're looking for improving bone density. They're looking to attenuate the rate of sarcopenia as they age. But something else that happens when we age is the decrease, the gradual decline in cognition. And so the gradual decline in memory. One of the reasons this happens, and I'll get to BDNF and how it ties into this, is that as we age, there is neurodegeneration. Neurodegeneration is and neurons will gradually die off. And remember, neurons are transmitting information that we take in. So when we're looking to do something, a neuron is gonna transmit that information. And if they're not functioning properly, or we're having fewer of them, all of these other processes related to memory, related to judgment, related to decision-making are going to be negatively affected. The good news though is that exercise can potentially counteract this. You asked specifically about resistance training, so I'll focus on that. But we do know that aerobic exercise is especially good at helping to attenuate this loss of cognition with age. You can't stop it, just like sarcopenia and the loss of muscle mass. It's going to happen, but you can slow the rate at which it occurs to be healthier with age and to have your brain health be better for a longer period of time. 
Resistance training can also have this effect to some degree, and the research is still emerging on this. Resistance training, as we talked about in exercise in general, can leverage a response of BDNF as we discussed, BDNF being most responsive to exercise. BDNF is the neurotrophin that is very responsible for preserving neurons or potentially creating new neurons. The overall brain health and the effects that BDNF could have that could have on improving brain function could be referred to as neuroplasticity. Neurogenesis would be creating new neurons. And then neuroprotection is just protecting this, trying to attenuate that uh, decline in neurons. So I'll use that term neuroprotection here as we move forward, because I think it's really the most prevalent one to what we're talking about with BDNF. We can think about this in, in a few different ways. Most of the research on resistance training in BDNF is acute in that individuals will come in, they'll have a blood draw, they'll go through a bout of exercise, and they'll have another blood draw, and they'll see if BDNF is increased. We also should look at this chronically, but let me stop at the acute portion for a moment and say two things. Talk about what is the importance of this, and then two, talking about the method of examining BDNF, which I said is in the blood. A lot of times when we do research in humans, this increases the ecological validity of doing research versus doing research in animals. But we have a few less capabilities because in this case, we'd like to be able to examine BDNF either at the receptor or in the brain, seeing how much BDNF is in the hippocampus or how much BDNF is released in the brain. But when we look at it in humans, obviously we're not able to do that. So we're looking at it in the blood. So we're taking a blood draw, meaning that's peripheral or circulating BDNF. So right there, that's one limitation. What is circulating or what is in the periphery isn't necessarily exactly what's indicative of what's going on in the brain. We believe there's a relationship and the value has data or the, val the, the data has value, but it's not the exact same thing. So when I say a resistance training study has showed a, an acute increase in BDNF, I'm talking about in circulation, in the blood, in the periphery of a human. So that's part one of that in, on the acute side. And also on the acute side, if we do a bout of exercise and then we test BDNF in the blood again, we see that it increases, that's cool. But we always have to be careful about extrapolating acute findings to what happens over the long term. So we say, all right. This To be able to say that this acute finding shows that resistance training has a neuroprotective effect would be a misnomer because a neuroprotective effect occurs over the long term. To actually say that, you would need to be able to assess, is there a resting change in BDNF concentrations over the very long term? Or to be able to assess, is there actually a change in neuronal activity over the very long term? What you can say from an acute study is this increased BDNF, possibly designing your training in a way that causes an acute increase in BDNF is a good idea because all of those acute increases in BDNF will lead to a chronic change, right? So that's the theory behind the acute death. But ideally, we look at this chronically to see what is the resting change in BDNF levels over time. Now, on the chronic side of it, 
based upon what I've said so far, and we've said that BDNF improves the preservation of neurons and assists with neuroprotection, the logical conclusion is that we would see an, in, a, an increase in BDNF levels in the blood would be a positive adaptation over the long term. You certainly wouldn't want this to decrease. That would be the logical conclusion to make. However, there is some data that suggests that over time of resistance training, the resting concentrations, meaning you're not fatigued, it's not after training, you're just going in early in the morning, getting a blood draw and seeing what your resting concentration of BDNF is. The resting concentrations over time with people that have years of resistance training are often lower than the resting concentrations of those that are sedentary or even those that are aerobic exercise or so forth. Now, why is this the case? That seems counterintuitive that people who are trained would have lower resting levels when acutely exercise increases BDNF. The reason we think is because there's actually more BDNF, but potentially the receptor sensitivity increases. So BDNF has a receptor called track B, not that important for our discussion, but more BDNF is bound to that receptor. So less of it is in circulation. So in individuals, if you're looking at this research, you might see that resting concentrations of BDNF decrease over time in the blood. That doesn't mean there's actually lower BDNF in the body. It just means at that time point, there's lower circulating because there's more of it in total, but more of it is bound to that receptor. And because there's more of it in total, when there's exercise or there's a release of BDNF, it has a better effect on neuroprotection. So it's just an interesting tidbit in the research of, of how that is perceived there. But th there's a lot of other questions to get out of here, which is how do we design a program for the best neuroprotective effects. And that's a tricky thing because I can give some suggestions, but we're taking a leap of faith and saying that the best design to elicit the acute response, it's what's best to have the best chronic adaptation. And if we give a parallel to this in more typical resistance training, strength hypertrophy type of language, it's just because something works in one session doesn't mean you should do it all the time or it doesn't mean that it's the best approach. If somebody listens to music in resistance training session and they get another rep or two, but to get that other rep or two, they had to turn on their favorite music as loud as they possibly could. They had to walk all around the gym as you do so everybody can see you, of course. And you got really jacked up for that set that's probably not advisable to do over and over again every single time. And just because it works once doesn't mean it'll keep working. And it's a big leap to say the acute configuration would go to the long term until we have that data. Anyways, there's a lot there, but I think that's the next thing, which is how do you configure training acutely? And can we be confident that's the best way to elicit neuroprotection over the long term? Before going into how could we configure the training i have a few questions and i think we will be very well here in the realm of opinion and speculation and hypothesis here the and it's a multi-faceted question the the first part of it would be do you have any sense of what the 
both what the minimum effective dose would be in order to get some of these benefits, but also at what point of time, assuming there's a declining marginal benefit in resistance training and the relation to additional BDNF, like where might that be? And as a follow-up here, and that will be even more s speculative, is any idea how listeners can think about practical impact that could have, let's say I do that for, I'm now 40 and I'm going to do that for five years or 10 years, what's going to be the practical difference? And then the last part of this multifaceted question. So first of all, is there a threshold or lower and an upper in effectivity? How can I think about this from an actual practical difference? Um, the, the, the third one and the most complex part of the question is a couple of weeks ago, we had Dr. Tommy Wood on the show, whose, whose research focuses on brain health. And he is working on a model that tries to include the different type of research that there is around impact on brain health. And in his, in the, in, I, I might not giving, I, I'm, I might not be able to cite this now 100% correctly, but I'm confident that it's roughly correct. And what I can cite here is that what he's postulating is that while there are many different factors that impact brain health, exercise, sleep, environmental toxins, all of these kind of things, what he's saying is in his theory, there's one one force and everything else follows it. So if you, for example, think about resistance training, you can optimize your sleep and your stress and your nutrition and so on. But if you don't lift weights, you're not going to have, there's no gains if you don't lift weights. And the analogy to that in the brain is mental stimulus. If you don't have proper mental stimulus, everything else is trying to optimize something that's not there. The last part of the question is, do you have any feeling around whether resistance training in isolation is enough to generate benefits? Or for example, in the study that you've run, hey, actually, yeah, the people have participated in that study. Yeah, they were also going through mental stimuli because they were still active in their, in, in their work or in school or, or whatever. Yeah, so let's take the last part of that first. I think it's really interesting. First and foremost, Dr. Wood is a neuroscientist. I don't know, but I would assume he's a neuroscientist by trade or is in that realm. I am, I am not. So I think that my opinion on this should definitely be looked at as inferior to his. I'm an exercise physiologist who, so I'm not a neuroscience researcher. I do exercise research that might aid in, in brain health or something like that. Like I also work with cancer patients in my research and people say, oh, you're a cancer researcher. I said, no, not at all. I am an exercise physiologist who happens to use our exercise models in these individuals. So I would absolutely defer to Dr. Wood on his take on this. But um, I guess my opinion is that, so in research, when we carry out and we've carried out multiple BDNF studies in our lab, um, one of them was a six-week trial um, where we looked at both the acute response of BDNF in one session and if there were changes over six weeks. And then the other one was just an acute trial. And I'll talk about both of those when looking at what to getting back to the minimum dose question, because we did try to actually answer that question in one of our studies. And so I think that, yes, resistance training can have in isolation some impact. Now, 
what I think is important is that's not misconstrued to say that I think regardless of anything else, resistance training is going to maximize that impact. I don't think so. Because what, but I think in isolation, it can have a impact, some impact, right? If we think of proximity to failure in resistance training, and I'll tie this in a moment, somebody will say, I training to seven repetitions in reserve, you shouldn't do that. It's not going to have any effect on hypertrophy. That's not true. It will cause some degree of muscle growth, especially in a beginner. It's probably not as good as training to one repetition in reserve, but it'll do something. And I would challenge somebody and say that if somebody does nothing and then somebody else trains to a seven RAR, I agree with you. It's probably not optimal, but it's better than nothing. It's doing something. If someone only trains resistance training and doesn't take care of any of these other things, will it leverage some benefit on neuroprotection? I don't know for sure, but I would wager to say yes. And the reason because in our research, when we've looked at these, the effects of resistance training on BDNF, which isn't neuroprotection, it's just looking at the change in BDNF. We do, the only thing we manipulate is the resistance training in that person's life. So yes, all of these people are in school and studying and they're doing other things and they're using their brains and they're engaged in other activities for sure. But everybody's doing something else other than just resistance training. So I think the ecological validity there is high is that when we set out to do research, we typically only want to isolate one variable so we can look at the effects on that one variable. Now that of course has its limitations because we're not controlling for these other things. And that's what can lead to an inter-individual response. Whereas half the people in that study could have been highly engaged in some uh, very in-depth class or something else. And that may have caused the BDNF changes, but, and other people weren't, but we only changed that one variable and we saw the improvement. So is that the same change in BDNF acutely that we would have saw is if, if everybody lived in the lab and we were able to give everybody an optimized meal for what they're doing and have everybody work on the same mental tasks all day. No, it's probably not the same benefit, but in isolation, we did see something. So I would say in isolation, we see something. Your point though, and as Dr. Wood stated, I think is so good though, because it's also analogous to somebody saying, ah, I'm taking some time off from the gym, so I'm just gonna eat a ton of protein. Okay. but. The you need the resistance training to really facilitate that higher protein intake, right? That is the catalyst for this, is the actual training itself, right? It's like people are always getting bogged down in little details, and that can be very beneficial. But if you don't have, let's say, the top five things in order, and you're only doing two of the top five things the best you can, why are you worrying about number 17? when number three, you're still struggling with, right? So those things can matter. Those other things can optimize it. Number 14, 15, 16, 17 on that list can optimize your training and your responses. Just as I don't think resistance training alone is gonna maximize the neuroprotective benefit, but I do think it will have some benefit. So I just think that's an important distinction and that's the case with most things. In terms of the other portions of the question, I'll go to the, I took some notes down here and make sure I hit them all. We'll go to the minimum dose perspective first. So I do think there's a minimum dose perspective and this gets to the 
overarching, how do we configure the resistance training program to increase BDNF? So in this case, we should consider the volume and the proximity to failure and the exercises that are used. So in the early studies for BDNF and resistance training, this came out in about 2010, over a decade ago, those studies looking at resistance training did not show that resistance training acutely increased BDNF. And at that time, a lot of folks were saying, hey, resistance training isn't the modality for this. We know aerobic training increases BDNF, can increase neuroprotection, can improve neuroprotection. We should do aerobic training. But when we look back at those studies, those studies were relatively low volume. Those studies were mostly untrained individuals. Those studies were trained not to failure. And those studies were machine-based exercises. And so some of the studies that came out after that, including in our lab, used more well-trained individuals, had the individuals trained to failure or close to it, and used multi-joint exercises that in squat bench press that included more volume. In nearly all of those studies with the higher volumes, the multi-joint exercises, training to failure, those things have shown an acute increase in BDNF. That acute increase tends to last for about an hour. Individuals blood draw, train, blood draw, BDNF goes up, comes back down after about an hour. What are the long-term benefits of that acute response? We don't know. But for a program, then I should say that from before we get to the exact program configuration, a follow-up study that we did, we wanted to see, our, I wanted to take all of these factors and say, all right, multi-joint exercises seem to do the trick. Training to failure or close to it seems to be better than training farther from failure. That's not a muscle growth question, right? I'm not talking about proximity to failure from muscle growth, right? So let's not get that confused just from the perspective of eliciting that acute BDNF response. So in our new study, I wanted to see, okay, what's the lowest amount of volume, that minimum dose you were referring to, that can elicit this acute change in BDNF? And we found that these four sets did increase circulating BDNF. So four sets was enough to do it. They were all to failure. Would four sets at a two IR do it? I don't know. And I think that's an important question because if somebody's training to, let's say for the sake of argument, that the acute increase in BDNF is important for the long-term changes. I don't know that to be true, but it seems logical. Let's take that approach. If we do that, now most people that would be interested in training for the neuroprotective benefits you want training to be practical. And if you say, hey, I know you don't like running or cycling or aerobic exercise, that's good for brain health. Don't worry, resistance training can do that too. But to get that benefit, you have to squat, bench press and deadlift to failure all of the time. That's not a great selling point for most people. Most people aren't thinking of that. They're thinking of, I can get this benefit from jogging or cycling at a moderate intensity while I'm on the treadmill on the bike talking to one of my friends who's next to me. Why, why? But now I have to go in the gym and I have to pick up a, a barbell off the floor and do it over and over again until I can't move. That sounds terrible. So I think the next step in the literature, for me at least, is what's the, the can other exercises elicit this change, increase in BDNF? Can you do it by staying at a reasonable proximity to failure? Now, that might mean you need to have the duration of exercise a little bit longer. I think for the general population, at least I would hypothesize, that a selling point of, hey, choose five or six exercises, take them to a two-hour IR, have the training session last an hour, 
would be a more feasible type of way for, for most people to train than saying, hey, you got to do four sets of squats to absolute momentary muscular failure. You'll be in and out of the gym, but you got to learn this thing, maybe open yourself up to injury, that sort of thing. Yes, I think that there is a, a, a minimum dose and that minimum dose not only includes sets, but may also have to interact with proximity to failure. Then the exercises may be important as well. So how, what can we do in the research in the future to find it a minimum dose that is a more feasible and sellable way to train for most people. Because if resistance training can really have this effect, this neuroprotective effect, it has to be in a prescription that a vast amount of the population will do. And if we can't find that prescription, I'm not sure practically it really matters then. Michael, there would be so many follow-up questions but I think we have covered an enormous ground today. We have talked about repetitions in reserve and giving us all the optionality to not have to go all out if you don't want to. We have talked about the impact of mental fatigue on resistance training, but also the impact of resistance training on your brain health. We got a ton of inspiring background knowledge, theoretical knowledge, research knowledge, as well as an understanding of how to apply this to our everyday lives. Uh, this has been incredibly insightful. Before I can let you go, Michael, please allow me to ask you three finisher questions. Just getting your top of your mind answer to this. What does happiness mean for you? Happiness means for me, harmonious life. You know, I have a family, I have a wife and a son and our life I'm, I'm happy to say is harmonious that we're enjoying what we're doing on a day to day basis every single day, while also working hard and working towards our goals and finding that right balance of each of us being independently happy and successful and supporting each other and also being happy and successful together collectively. If you could live your life again, what would you wish you would have fully understood at the age of 20? Are you suggesting that I didn't know it all at 20? Cause I, it's pretty on point. No, I, at the age of 20, what would I have wanted to know at the age of 20? I think perhaps the most common this is probably common in a lot of people. And if somebody's 20 years old and not recognizing, it's probably because they still need to realize it. But um, that there really isn't a reason to almost ever get upset. or And that comes from having a greater understanding as you get older that one, you don't really, you can be wrong a lot and that's okay. But when you're discussing something with somebody the one thing that I think I've picked up over the years is that when there could be an objectively right answer to something, but that other person that you're, if you're talking about something with them, they could not necessarily be even aware that there's an objective answer. And you think they're wrong about what they're saying. And you think, oh, I can prove that they're wrong, but it doesn't make their point of view invalid because they're coming at something with the information they have, 
from their perspective. And every single one of us, including myself, are wrapped up in our world. And so we see things how we see things from our experiences. And so at 20 years old, I'm not sure that I recognized that a lot when I was speaking with people. I would think somebody would say something, I think, wrong. And now I'll try to keep in mind a lot when I'm talking with somebody, if we're having a difference of opinion, that one, I could absolutely be wrong. And two, even if I still don't think I'm wrong, that their opinion is not invalid. And I can still learn something because I can understand, try to understand at least, how they're coming to this, where they're coming at it from, and that, hey, I might think I'm still right, but I actually understand how their opinion is shaped based upon the experiences that they have. So even if you think somebody is still incorrect, their opinion isn't invalid. And I don't think I understood that a long time ago. And I'm still probably evolving on that, but I think that's a really important distinction to, to get across. That's a beautiful perspective. Only all social media networks would go bankrupt if more people would apply that, uh, that mental model. Where should listeners go to learn more about you or your work? They can find me in two places, as you mentioned at the outset, and I, I appreciate the time for this and mention. Uh, you can find all of our research from our laboratory on uh, uh, Google Scholar, PubMed, on, in all of our publications. And with that, I really just want to thank the students that work in my laboratory at the university. Zach Robinson, Josh Pelland, and Jacob Remmert, they work at a company called Data Driven Strength as well. They own it. They do a great job. And I'm just so thankful for their efforts. And so you can find our research out there on the internet. And then in terms of where you could find some more about me is in the Mass Research Review. The Mass Research Review is something that I put out each month with Eric Trexler, Eric Helms, and Lauren Colenso-Semple. We select what we think is the most important research related to health and fitness and training over a month. And we put out a new issue on the first of every month where we write long and short form articles and videos describing this training and giving you actionable takeaways, breaking down the studies, if there's anything the study could have improved or what they did well and how this can help somebody's training and health and fitness. You can find us at massresearchreview.com. We're also on Instagram at Mass Research Review, and I'm really grateful to work on that team. I love doing that each month. We think we have a great product. You could also find us every Wednesday night, 7 p.m. on the Mass Research Review YouTube for Mass Office Hours. That is a free uh, live stream we do. You can listen to it in podcast format afterwards. So if you're not interested in subscribing to Mass yet or you want to see what we're all about, check out the free office hours and live stream. But I appreciate you giving me a minute or so to mention those things. I have no affiliation with Mass Research Review and also it's not part of any deal here, but I want to say that as CEO of Freeletics, I strive to stay on top of uh, the research, but time is limited and I am an actual subscriber of Mass Research Review since quite a while and enjoy all the value that is coming through. So I can only recommend this source of knowledge and inspiration. Michael, it has been... Truly great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Daniel. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the show. I would love to get your comments, suggestions, and feedback. Also, if there's a special topic you would like me to address or someone specific you'd love to see on the show. 
If you want to support me, please hit the subscribe button and leave me a rating. I hope you will listen in again on the next show. Until then, all the best.